Isaiah 66, the Lord says, These are the ones uh, I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Now, Father, these, those words are uh, precious and they are a challenge for us this morning. It is easy to be humble before your word when we agree with your words. But it's so much harder to humble our hearts before you when we don't like what we read. And for some, perhaps for many of us this morning, your word to us is going to be a great challenge. Please, I pray, by your sovereign goodness, by your spirit, soften our hearts. Give us a will to hear your words, to be humble and contrite before them, and indeed to tremble where that is appropriate, and yet to praise you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week we're starting an eight-week series uh, which we'll do in two four-week blocks. We're going to be four weeks now, then we have a little break for, for Easter and an, our anniversary service, and then we'll come back and have another four weeks after Easter. Uh, it's a doctrinal series, rather than what we normally do here is to teach through books of the Bible in an attempt to understand what God intends for us to see from that particular book. And so it's probably right that we start this series with a bit of a think about uh, what we're doing. We're going to look at something called the order of salvation, the ordo salutis. We're used to thinking about what Jesus has done for us in the past, in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection and his ascension. If you're regular, those things will be familiar to you. But that is not the whole story. The order of salvation helps us to think about what God is doing in us and to us in order to save us. The spine of the Ordo Salutis is found in uh, Romans chapter 8, just back one page, I think, from what Lao just read to us. Uh, chapter 8, verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, that is weeks 1, 2, 4 and 8 of our series, if you're interested. Predestination calling, justification, and glorification. And please note there, God is not aiming at your justification, but your glorification. And God does not only want to take away uh, your guilt and condemnation for sin, but the sin itself, the inclination to sin, the experience of sin and curse in the world. Uh, that is where the whole story of human history is heading. Now, I know that thinking about how God gets glory for himself in his sovereign action to save us, I know that some of us will really struggle with this doctrine, and I'm afraid it runs right through the whole series. It will be a wrestle for some of us. Uh, most of us who uh, adopt a strong view of God's sovereignty have struggled, often for years, with its implications. Some of you will struggle with it today or, or next week. You won't want to hear what I'm going to say. But I, I want to say up front that without this doctrine, all comfort and assurance is stripped away from the Christian life. This world can be a, a very 
hard place to live. This week has reminded me very clearly of that again. And it is this doctrine that God works in all things for good. That means we can look at tragedy at hard times. We can look them in the face and know that in some hidden way that is hard for us to perceive in the middle of pain, God is working for good. Now we're thinking more about that as we unfold this uh, series. And I'm not intending to answer every objection or question you might have today. In fact, I expect you'll have more questions at the end of this sermon than you had at the beginning. And that's somewhat deliberate. I do expect you to properly engage with God's words. And for it to press upon you this week. For you to struggle to escape the implications of Romans chapter 9. So that you come next week hungry to have your questions answered. And puzzle through this series with me. But you might be thinking, I don't want to think about these things. And surely it doesn't matter so long as they're true. So long as we get to be glorified with Jesus at the end of time, it doesn't really matter how we think about it now. Let me give you three reasons why I think that is wrong-headed and dangerous. First, I want you to persevere. Perseverance means keeping going as a Christian until the day that Jesus comes back or you die. If you're interested, that's week seven in our series. But I want you to see right now up front why it is that some professing Christians fall away. Who don't persevere. So please keep one finger in at Romans. We'll be coming back there. And turn just a few pages over to page 1183 to Colossians chapter 2. This is crucially important. I want you to to read along with me. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3 In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, The burden of the book of, uh, of Colossians up to this point is to show that Jesus is everything we need. That every good thing is found in him, both on this in this life and particularly in the life to come. And now we're being told that all the truth and all the wisdom that there is in the world is found in Christ. Jesus is all truth, all God, and every good thing is found. In relation to him. In other words, Paul is saying, you have everything, if you are a Christian, you have everything that you could possibly need already. Now, why does Paul say this? Because the Colossians do not realise that they have everything in Jesus. And because they're ignorant of what they have in Christ, they risk, verse 4, take a look with me, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. There's a danger of deception. Paul wants them to stand firm, holding on with both hands to Jesus because they have everything in Jesus. Not, verse 8, taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Paul's fear is this. By not knowing the sheer scale of what God has done for them in Christ, they might take one hand off Christ to grab onto something else which seems more substantial but turns out to be hollow and barren and crumble in their hands. Brothers, that is madness. 
to have every good thing and to let go of it for nothing is madness. But you only know that it's madness if you understand what you have in Christ. And because I want every one of you in this room to persevere to the end, we need to give you a bigger and bigger vision of who Jesus is and what he has done so that you cling on with both hands to him and do not let go under any circumstances. Secondly, we need to look at this so that you don't boast. Boasting is a massive issue in the New Testament, pretty much. I reckon half the books, maybe more of the New Testament, address the issue of boasting. I've put three references, I could have multiplied them for you, on your service sheet for you to chase down later. Places where boasting is absolutely ruled out. We're going to see it illustrated as we come to look at Romans in a moment. Let me just read one of those references for you. Uh, This is with regard to having faith, which we'll come to in our third week. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. We need to know what God has done so that we don't take the credit for it, so that he gets the, the glory. And that's our third point. Glorify God. You see, if we humble ourselves before God's word and crucify our boasting, uh, we, we put ourselves in the dust before God, uh, see that he has done so much for us, in the same degree that we humble ourselves, that is the degree to which we will glorify God. Three times in the first half of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that God does everything for the praise of his glory or for the praise of his glorious grace. We are to humble ourselves and see that salvation is by grace alone. And to that degree, we are to give God all the glory he deserves. And as we'll see shortly, God does everything for his glory. So as we grow to understand the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of what God has done, so we will see more of God's work, give him all the glory and humble ourselves before him. And that is my aim for this series. My purpose in the rest of our sermon is to set out the doctrine of election, which is the first stop on both on Paul's uh, list there in Romans chapter 8 and with the doctrine of election more broadly doctrine of salvation more broadly and I take it it's a relatively straightforward doctrine to lay out but then we need to raise a couple of pastoral challenges, questions that you might have uh, and we need to begin to address some of those let's begin with what we're talking about election is God in his sovereignty choosing us for salvation Now, there are two problems that come out of that that need addressing. The first is, uh, is that coherent? How does that work? And secondly, uh, there's a question of justice. How is that fair? How does it work? How is it fair? Let's start with the question of coherence. So, on the one hand, if you are a Christian here today, at some point you made a choice to follow Jesus. Indeed, you may remember the day and the hour very clearly. On the other hand, you have texts like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God chose us in him before the creation of the world. So which is it? 
We know that we chose God, and the Bible insists that God chose us, so which came first? Well, in purely chronological terms, it's clearly God choosing us. After all, Ephesians says it was before the beginning of creation, and I don't think you were there for that. But that's not quite the question for us, is it? That's not the sticking point. Which one has logical priority? Which one is decisive? After all, God knows everything, doesn't he? He he knows from the beginning of time what's going to happen in the future. So he knows who's going to choose him. So whose choice is decisive? Did we choose God because he first chose us? Or did he choose us because he saw that we would choose him? Which one comes first, logically? Whose was the decisive choice? And that is not just an academic question. And I take it every one of you in the room here with us this morning will have already made a decision on that question even before you came in this morning. And the answer we give implies a lot of other things. For example, who gets the credit for our salvation? Who gets to boast? Who should I trust to get me to heaven? Myself or God? And who you are trusting for your salvation is not a small question. And this is right underneath your answer to the biggest questions. Can you see the problem? How we configure our answer to this question has massive implications for who we trust and where we're heading. And then secondly, the question of fairness. Did God force me to choose him? Isn't that unfair? What about the people who never choose Christ? Did God choose to damn them? Of course, a trite answer might be, well, did you force him to choose you? That doesn't seem much fairer, to be honest. But I don't want to duck the question. We're going to look it full in the face this morning. They're hard questions. They're not easy questions. And and easy answers are not helpful for us. I want us to look now at Romans chapter 9 and just verses 11 to 13 to see how it is that Paul configures these two choosings. And let me say, these are not... My words, they're God's words. And will we humble ourselves before his word? And so the point on your handout, chosen before works. Paul is here dealing with the question of the Jewish people. Uh, Having laid out the gospel for eight chapters, Paul then turns to the question of, what about the Jews? Didn't God promise to save them? And yet loads of the Jews, and he killed Jesus, loads of them are, are, are rebelling against the gospel. Surely God promised salvation to them. It looks like God has chosen Israel, and yet many people in Israel have rejected Jesus. Whose decision is decisive? God chose them, and they resisted God's choice, And so it is the choice of Israel that is decisive. God says, come, and they go, no, thank you. And that means God's promises are very weak. God has no power to save. It's up to you. And come on, Romans, don't bother. Let's just forget it. God isn't able to save. And Paul's answer here in Romans 9 is is extremely important for us. In verse 6 of Lau's reading for us, notice, 
He begins by saying, not all who are descended from Israel, that is, the man Israel, Jacob, are Israel, that is, the people of God. And he goes on in the next few verses to explain that within the whole body of those who are descended from Abraham, some of those people were the chosen people. Not all of them were the chosen people. It's not about your uh, descent physically, but about the promise and believing the promise. So the covenant promise was made to all of the descendants of Abraham, but only some of them were ever truly chosen to accept it. He said, if you misidentify the people who are church, well, then you'll look at the people falling away and say, see, God hasn't got the power to save them. God can't be sovereign. And strictly speaking, that doesn't completely answer our question either, does it? Because all that's really saying is, there are some people who God chooses who also choose God, and we still haven't answered the question of which one comes first. So we get to verse 10. And Paul gives us the historical example of the conception of Rebekah's children, Esau and Jacob. That is the original Israel. By rights, if heredity mattered, then Esau got the birthright. It is Esau's right to receive the promise from his father. Yet verse 12, God predicts to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Now the key question for Paul to explain for us is this, why? Why will the older serve the younger? Is it, is it merely that he's saying, look, I've seen the future, and it's going to be this way around, just so you know? Is that why verse 13 says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? Is it just, you know, Jacob will do the right thing, and so I love him. Esau made the wrong choice, I, I'm going to hate him. Did God see Jacob was a godly man and Esau a monster? Does God choose Jacob because he sees that Jacob will be a Christian, will choose to follow him? Does Paul allow Jacob's choice to be decisive? That's the question. And Paul says, no, he doesn't. Let's be careful. First, notice that what happens here has to happen in order for God's election to be election. Verse 11. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. Election cannot be configured however we want. Election is what God says it is. And God's election is done away with if we get the order wrong of the choosings here. In effect, if our choice comes first, logically, and God's hand is forced to choosing us, then God is not really choosing. He's making do. Now here's the key. Verse 11, look down with me please. The key is the word before. What does the word before mean in verse 11? And God is clearly here predicting that Jacob will be saved before he has done anything. That's true. He, he is making a prediction of the future. He's saying it before the future happens. Okay, That's absolutely true. It's also true that God's election, his choice here is happening before the future happens before the boys are even born before the twins were born or done anything good or bad she was told the older will serve the younger so it's true that both the prediction and the election are chronologically prior but we already knew that didn't we we already knew that god's election of his people was before the beginning of the world so 
Paul still hasn't quite answered the question. If that's all the word before means, he hasn't addressed the question. But Paul is doing something more here. If he had simply said before they were born and left it at that, I think we could say the point was merely a chronological one. But he doesn't, does he? Take a look again. Before they had done anything, good or bad. Now, is Paul simply making a redundant point here? I mean, clearly, if they aren't born yet, then they haven't done anything good or bad. So he seems to be repeating himself. Is that all he's doing? I mean, of course it's before they've done anything good or bad. They're not, uh, they're not born yet. But this is not Paul making a repetitious point. Paul is here ruling out the idea that God chooses on the basis of any merit in the one chosen. That's why he says in verse 12, it is not by works. God's election is before taking into account anything about Jacob and Esau. Before they had done anything good or bad, before God had weighed their lives in the balance and decided that one was a good person and one was a bad person, for if you know the story, I don't think you could really put a fag paper between Esau and Jacob in terms of their godliness. God's purpose in election is to choose freely. That's what he goes on to say in verse 15. I will have mercy on him, I will have mercy. I will have compassion on him, I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God chooses freely. It's opposed to works. It's opposed to anything that we might do, even choosing God. That doesn't count to our credit. Before God considered anything about Jacob and Esau, he chose to fix his love on Jacob and not on Esau. It was not because God God saw that Jacob would choose God that God chose Jacob. It was because God had set his course that Jacob would choose God. That's why some of the Jews believed and others didn't. God chose some of the descendants of Israel as he chose some of the Gentiles. Not all of Israel belongs to Israel. Well, there's the doctrine. And it's a struggle for us, isn't it? Our doctrine of election is completely consistent with a strong view of God's sovereignty. God is the one who makes the decisive choice, just as it is God who plans the the whole of human history from beginning to end. He planned the death of Christ for us before he'd even begun the world. So let's go back to those questions we raised a few minutes ago. If we think that the choice is decisively ours, well then we, we rely on ourselves to save ourselves. It's us holding on to Jesus, and if we let go, we're lost. We rely on ourselves. But now, can we see that? Paul has a very strong view of the sovereignty of God. God chooses, not on the basis of anything that you or I have done, but simply because he wants to choose. He loves us, not because we're lovely, which is just as well, because we're not, but because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us because he loves us. And you drill right the way down and at the bedrock there is God's love for us. Love is the foundation of God's election of us. 
And Paul thinks this is a thing to praise God for. You get to the end of chapter 11, this section of Romans, and Paul uh, breaks into song. And yet we struggle so much with it. And why is it that we hear these things and find them so offensive? Let me give you two strands. There are, there are plenty more. And the first is we deploy the fairness argument. If God chooses some and not others for salvation, isn't that unfair? Doesn't everyone deserve the same thing? We think that God discriminating is unfair, unloving, and therefore ungodlike. Much better to attribute the damnation of sinners to their own choice. At least that way, it seems fairer. But underneath that question lurks another thought. And it is this. I like the idea of saving myself. My pride and my sense of independence relies on it. If God chose me and I am cast as a marionette doing his will, then I am humbled into the dust. I cannot resist him. And we don't like being humbled into the dust, do we? And every fibre of our worldly selves will want to resist this doctrine. We want to be able to boast. I had the sense to see God and accept him. I had the sense to come to Jesus. I did it. So I'm going to address those two points. The, two pre- the presenting question and I think the, the issue of our hearts underneath it. And the first thing to say is, yes, it is unfair. Absolutely it's unfair. And no, it's not. It, it is unfair because all of us deserve to go to hell. Because every one of us has rejected Jesus. None of us have lived the perfect life that God's law requires. We all deserve banishment from God's presence. And if God left us to what we we deserved, and indeed what we would choose for ourselves, left our own devices, then nobody but Christ would be glorified. Are we so determined to have God be fair that we would give up heaven for hell? Is that what we want to do? I hope not. We'll think about how it is that our our choice and God's choice come together next week as we think about God's call and our regeneration. But suffice it to say at this point that if you're a Christian here today, I hope you're happy that you're a Christian. I hope that God choosing you out of love before the beginning of creation is a thing that warms your heart. I, for one, am very thankful that God chose me. I would not have chosen him. The valley of dry bones cannot make itself live if you know Ezekiel 37. Some get justice and some get mercy. And in that sense it is unfair and we are the ones who get the unfairness. But is it wrong? That's the question. Is it wrong for God to behave like this? And I think the answer is given to us by Paul in 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 verse 22 of Romans chapter 9. Although I think actually in this translation it's slightly obscured. But what if God, uh, although there should be uh, desiring, desiring to show his wrath and make his his power known, but with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? God prepares some for destruction, some for glory. 
to show both his justice and his mercy. He does this to show us himself. If we think we are the centre of the story, we've got the universe badly wrong. God is the centre of the story, and both his justice and his mercy show us what God is like, that we might glorify him. It's tempting for us, isn't it, to say, but it's still unfair. But my friends, God is not one of us that has to be fair on our terms. Look at verse 21 with me. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? We belong to God. And he can do what he wants with us. And we have no control over him. God acts to reveal his glory in and through us. We're not the centre of the story, he is. We don't get to say to God, you can't do that, because he can. We are his creatures. We have no rights before him. We are rebels. And all who do not turn to Jesus get what they deserve, what they have chosen for themselves. God is not unjust. He gives people what they have chosen. And if God then chooses to have mercy on millions for his glory's sake, isn't that brilliant news for us? Isn't it? Did he choose you against your will? Yes. Just as he raised Lazarus from the dead against Lazarus's will. Did he change your will to desire him? Yes, he did. And I hope you're grateful that he did. Don't you desperately want to avoid hell and instead enjoy the bounty of his love and grace for all eternity? I hope you do. Isn't giving up your pride a small price to pay to give God the glory? Finally, let me say a word on God. Acting for his glory is good for us. It really flows out of what we've already seen. It's a point that I'm going to make again and again and again as we go through this series. Yes, it's all about God's glory, and yes, it is very good for us. God elects us, he chooses us for his glory. He wants to display to the universe the extent of his mercy by saving millions of people to be with Christ forever. Because he is the centre of the story. And let me say to you, the fact that he's chosen to save us is such a good thing for us, isn't it? Not just for him, but for us. Would you really trust yourself to be the centre of the story? To make the right choices? Because whatever God does to restore us to his fellowship is, is the best for us. So if we were in charge, we would make a much worse job of it than he does. He does the best possible good for us. Romans 8 says, he works all things for the good of those that love him. He acts for his glory, yes, and it's really, really good news for us. Somehow, God has set the universe up so that doing doing things for the maximum glory of himself also equates to doing the best possible good for us. Which is really better to say, God saw you, which is better to say, Where do you really want to stand? One, that God saw you before the beginning of creation, knew your name and everything about you, and then wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
that he carved your name in the palms of Jesus' hands as he was on the cross, that, that he has bent the whole of human history to you so that you would be saved, you would hear the gospel, you would repent and believe, you would be in eternity with him. Which is better, that or God doesn't really have a functioning sovereignty. I chose God and I could unchoose him as well. So I have no real confidence of making it to the end of the Christian life. Frankly, it's a surprise that Jesus managed to even get to the cross, given how little sovereignty God has. And certainly he wasn't dying for me personally. He was just dying in general. And then God crossed his fingers and hoped that someone would trust in him. Which means God doesn't love me. To be honest, he saved me against his own will. He stuck with me. Which is better? Which God do you really want to have a relationship with? And so here's my challenge for you this week. We've, we've really only scratched the surface of this and we've only begun a series that's going to continue to wrestle with these things over the next few weeks. If you struggle with the sovereign choice of God, please grab a Bible this week and read it. You will see this truth everywhere. Read Ephesians. We're going to be studying it from a week on Tuesday onwards. And it's everywhere in that book. Or Exodus. Or frankly, read anything. And you will see the sovereignty of God in salvation everywhere. I don't mind you struggling with this. Wrestling hard. It's a good thing to do. <laughs> Jacob wrestled with God, didn't he? That's what the Psalms are. They're a wrestle with God. I don't understand this. Help me. But please wrestle with God and not with me. I've tried simply to lay out what God says in his words. And if you don't like it, if you're struggling with it, do come and talk to me. Talk to Andy. Talk to one of the elders. And talk to each other. Challenge each other. Wrestle with it by all means. And then come back next week with all of your questions and all of your searchings, and we'll continue to look at how it is that God brings glory to himself and does the maximum good for us as he saves us. Let's pray. Our Father, you are good, and our, our minds are so shrouded in, in darkness so often, and our hearts lust after things that are not you, that we struggle to believe the harder doctrines, which in your wisdom are the foundation of so much that we delight to believe. Now, Father, some of us here are struggling with these things. And as we struggle, uh, the whole edifice of our faith uh, totters. Please uh, strengthen us by your Spirit to believe the truth even where it's hard. Be merciful. Hold on to your people. You've promised that nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Please uh, don't let doubts and struggles do that. Be very kind to us. And as a church, help us to love each other with gentleness and patience. As we talk these things through, as we uh, try to apply them to our lives, please be gracious to us. 
for your name's sake. Amen.